Tonight on Farage, we debate, is this country now too reliant on wind power? We'll have somebody for that argument and somebody strongly against the proposition. And a report from University College London saying that an extra 10,000 people will die of cancer because they weren't diagnosed during the COVID crisis. And joining me on Talking Pints, the chief from Celebrity Hunted, Peter Blexley. Now, my scepticism about wind energy started about 20 years ago when the late, great journalist Christopher Booker uh, explained to me that the intermittency of wind was something that meant we should never become too reliant upon it. It might have some useful local applications, but for the national grid to rely on it too much would be a mistake, and I very much took that in. And when David Cameron became Prime Minister and introduced the Energy Act in 2013, it was clear uh, that he wanted to build as many wind turbines onshore on our beautiful uplands as he possibly could. Uh, and I turned it into an electoral issue for UKIP. And that year, in the local English county elections, where UKIP got 25% of the vote, one of the key planks of our manifesto was that these things should not despoil England's green and pleasant land because they were too expensive, uh, they didn't actually work enough of the time. Uh, but very interesting, as we went into the 2015 general election, I found an astonishing level of hostility towards me from the other parties on this issue, as of course with many others. And then it began to sink home why I was in this tiny political minority. Well, try this for size. At the time, the Prime Minister David Cameron's father-in-law was being paid £1,000 a day just to have wind turbines sited on his land in North Lincolnshire. Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party and his wife earned very good money as a lawyer fighting for companies who were making applications to have onshore sites. And Nick Clegg, who was the Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the Lib Dems, well, his wife was non-executive director of the biggest wind turbine company in Spain. They were all in it. And it seemed, you know, when I talked to wealthier friends of mine, oh, no, no, Nigel, uh, these wind turbines are wonderful. And that's because they were all being paid lots and lots of money to have them on their land. Uh, now, in the end, the political pressure against having wind farms on land meant we started building vast arrays offshore, uh, which produced even more expensive electricity, uh, slightly more reliability in terms of wind. Uh, but look, today is another very calm day. Looking at the forecast for the next couple of weeks ahead, we're not going to get any significant amounts of wind at all. I accept forecasts can change, but that's how it looks now. And as a result of all of this, far from, oh, isn't it wonderful, darlings, that yesterday 25% if our energy came from wind, which is what we hear from the industry, well, they have a good day, they're pretty quiet at the moment because over the course of the last month, research now indicates that only 2% of our electricity needs have come from onshore and offshore wind combined. Just 2%, despite the tens of billions, roughly 10 billion a year, of taxpayer money subsidy that is pumped into the wind industry. And as a result of that, we're now ever more reliant on gas, the price of which, by the way, went up 16% just yesterday. 
and it's up about 250% so far this year. So we're in a real energy crisis, and we need to start thinking long-term. We need to start thinking strategically. I am not against renewable sources of energy, but I put this premise to you tonight, that this country has become way too dependent, far too reliant on wind energy. Uh, one of those things that all the politicians supported, uh, doing so because they thought it was good to go green, doing so because they wanted the virtue signal. I tell you what none of them ever told you. None of them ever told you that to produce each and every wind turbine, it takes 150 tonnes of coal. Yep, 150 tonnes of coal for each wind turbine. So before you even place these turbines way out at sea or on land, you've already expended a very large amount of carbon dioxide. But that, of course, never, ever gets discussed. So tonight what I want to do is give you not just my opinion, but the opinions of somebody who shares my scepticism and somebody who thinks that I'm wrong. And let's have this debate. But you please give me your views. Are we too reliant on wind energy? Let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Let the debate begin. Well, joining me is Andrew Mockford, Deputy Director of the Global Warming Policy Forum. Andrew, good evening and welcome to the show. Good evening, Nigel. Nice to be here. So just 2% last month of our energy needs came from wind. Uh, it would appear, looking for the next couple of weeks, that we're in very much the same position. Um, are we too reliant, please, on wind energy? Without a shadow of a doubt. Wind does this all the time. Um, this year has been appalling for the wind industry. It's down something between 25%, maybe even 30% yeah. on last year. Wind has been appalling this year. And this is, this is not unusual. This happens quite a lot. If you cast your mind back, I don't really remember the, the really cold winter we had in 2010, 2011. Where I live in Scotland, we had three weeks where it was sub-zero. We got down to minus 13 here, and there was no wind for that whole period. So if we were relying on electricity for heating, as the government hopes we will do in future, we would have been in serious trouble in, in, in the, at that point. How is it, Andrew, how is it that the entirety of the political class and nearly all, not all, but nearly all of the media were completely taken in by this? Yeah, we have been sold apart, haven't we? Um, I don't, how, how it was done, opposition was demonised. I think a lot of people in positions of power, as you suggested, um, were making money out of it. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, it, it was seen as, as a virtuous thing to do. Who could argue with, with um, environmentalism saving the planet? Yep. Um, now, the point that um, um, Nigel Lawson always used to make was that um, we're saving the planet for our grandchildren who are going to be much wealthier than us, OK? Um, yeah, we're not really saving the planet. We are, we are trying to affect the weather a little bit in, in you know, 100 years' time or whatever. Um, but... We are now seeing that we're doing that at the expense of ourselves and our children who are alive today. And I don't think people are going to wear that much longer. As you, as you alluded to at the start of the programme, we are heading into a major energy crisis now. Yeah. And I think if people are told that they've got to continue doing that um, to change the weather in 2050, I, th I think they'll be, they'll, there will be um, 
uproar. Yeah, and of course, fuel poverty. Expensive fuel has been caused directly by the huge amounts of subsidy put into this industry and put on the bills of ordinary people. I've seen, you know, through this, one of the biggest transferences of money from the poor to the rich that I've seen in my lifetime. But, Andrew Montford, I have to ask you, it's all well and good to come on this show and rubbish wind energy. In short, can you give me a positive alternative? Yeah. The, uh, the long-term solution probably has to be nuclear. Now, nuclear has a bit of a bad image because um, we see things like Hinkley C, which is hugely expensive. Yeah. But there are new technologies in the nuclear sphere coming on stream um, in the next decade or so that promise to be much more exciting. Small modular nuclear reactors, so you yeah. build them in a factory and then you can just, you know, if you need an extra one, you just stick another one alongside the existing ones. That's a, that's a technology that is, is well, very exciting and could bring the costs down I, in, the, in, in, the, in the short term, in the medium term, I think about them. I think you may be right, and we will, later on this week, develop, you know, develop an argument around those modern nuclear reactors. But for, for the meanwhile, Andrew Mopford, thank you for joining me. Well, that was the case, folks. To back up my thesis that we're way too reliant upon wind energy, we've made a big strategic error and we need to do different. Well... Joining me now to put the other side of the argument is Tom Burke, chairman of E3G, a climate change think tank and a former government advisor on climate change and former executive director of Friends of the Earth. Tom, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. Do you understand my criticism and my scepticism uh, and my belief that we've become too reliant on wind energy because it has directly contributed to the mess that we find ourselves in now? No, I don't. I don't think we're in as much of a mess. In fact, funnily enough, I found myself the other uh, uh, morning uh, agreeing with quasi sorry, quasi Quateng, yes. uh, which is not something I'm used to doing, agreeing with a Conservative energy minister I mostly disagree with, when he told people that we weren't in an emergency, it isn't a catastrophe, <laughs> the lights are going to stay on, and I found myself agreeing with him. And well, I, I need to agree <laughs> with him on that issue. Well, when, when governments say there's not a crisis, it, it generally worries me a little bit. But, look, let's get to the point of wind. You know, I understand, Tom, that it can have a very useful local application. I get that. I understand that. But, you know, when you look at those numbers, those hard statistics, that despite the £10 billion a year of taxpayers' money that goes into this industry and has been going in now for year after year, that last month wind energy only contributed 2% of our electricity needs. I mean, that is a failure, isn't it? Well, it would be if it were true. I agree with you completely, but it's not true as the way you put it. You've ah. been very selective in the way you've chosen the facts. And by well, the not way... Really. Well, not really. Yes. Tom, not really. Yes. I mean, look, look, on average, you know, we know a really good month, it can be 20%, yeah, that comes from wind, and on some days, it can be 25%. I know that, I've acknowledged that, but, you know, a, a reputable... Energy consultant, Cornwall Insight, that is their calculation, that is their number that they've put in the public domain. And I've not heard anybody, and if, if you want to, please do, but I've not heard anybody counter that number today. Well, well let, me, let me do so, and I will. Uh, please. As uh, Andrew said, we have these kind of periods of quiet uh, wind, low wind, all the time. The last time we had a period like this was in the 1960s. So we don't have them all the time. 
every now and then, every now and then, there is a period when you get, just like we've had for the last few months, it's down at 2%. Actually, most of the time, it's more of the 20% that you were saying, when the wind blows as it normally blows. Now, come on, the cost. We, can, can you imagine a Conservative government ever thought it was a good idea to buy 35 years' worth of electricity at a fixed price at twice the cost you can get it Otherwise. No, no, no I, I thought it was... I, as somebody who'd been a former commodities trader, uh, Tom, I'm with you, I thought it was one of the most moronic things I've ever seen in my life, and the Chinese and the French uh, couldn't have believed their luck when George Osborne walked through the door. I understand that, and I get that. It was a crazy thing to do, and the whole Hinkley Point project is now, I think, going through a period of rethink. But let me put this to you. What would happen if... Let's say this February, we get a great big, big anti-cyclone that sits over the UK for a couple of weeks with virtually no wind energy production at all, and we find ourselves out of natural gas. That in a modern world that has been well, digitised. Why would we find ourselves out of natural gas? Nigel, if I accept your assumptions, yep. then I'm going to come to the same conclusion as you. The difference yep. is I don't accept your assumptions. All right, so you I mean, don't why accept. Would I, why would I think that's going to happen? Right, let, me, so you... let, me, let me give you a Well, well we do get... Hang on, Tom. We do get anti-cyclones every winter. It's just a question we of whether do. they last for a couple of days or longer, isn't it? Well, well, it is entirely. And what's your reason for expecting that we'll get an anti-cyclone in the winter that lasts as long as the current anti-cyclone, which we haven't had an experience of for the, since the 1960s? Well, you're absolutely right. It may happen. But yes. if you went around trying to avoid all the risks that could happen, you'd never get in the car. No, and I accept that point, and that's a perfectly fair and reasonable argument to make. But the weather forecast for the next couple of weeks that I can see is relatively calm. The price of natural gas is going through the roof. There are legitimate concerns about supply. Isn't it time we started to think about developing technologies that were more reliable and perhaps wouldn't need as much taxpayer subsidy? What about the idea of these new modular nuclear generators? Well, they're not new, and we don't have any of them, and they're only drawings on a page. I've got a much better idea. Go on. Why don't we actually invest in stopping all the leakage of energy from our homes, uh, which we have the worst homes in the whole of Europe for? Why don't we invest in doing that so that not only will we create an enormous number of jobs all over the country, but we drive people's bills down? If we did that, we'd be far less vulnerable. <laughs> well... One, two, cold winters. Two, to the rising price of gas. Now, the government has tried <coughs> to do that, both Labour and Tory governments, and they failed. And the reason they've primarily failed is they've never bothered to do what we did with vaccines with such success in the distribution of them, and that's involved local government in actually well, helping us to deliver. Well, we could, bring their, we, we could bring people's electricity bills down by nearly 25% if we got rid of the green subsidy that is paid to rich landowners and giant foreign companies involved in the wind industry. I have to say, I, I, you know, you're absolutely right about there being a lot of people who do very well out of yeah. um, renewable energy. They're, by and large, not most of us who live in cities and so on, and they are rich landowners. You know which party they belong to. Uh, 
there are also an awful, awful lot more people who don't do very well out of bringing and importing fossil fuels into the country. So I'm not sure you're sort of like, are there lots of villains ripping us off? I agree with that. Yeah, we should do better to get rid of all of them. If you don't have to buy the, the electricity or the gas because you've reduced your demand for it while staying as warm as you want to, then you're better off. Well, and, and final question for you. Could the wind energy industry survive without massive taxpayer subsidy? Yeah, it is now surviving without massive taxpaying subsidy. It if you produced. want to, the electric, you and I agree on something, which I'm surprised by, but I'm really interested. We both think that Hinckley was moronic. Yeah. Completely right. It now costs you a, uh, about £112 a megawatt hour for its electricity. And that will keep on going up because it's index linked. Wind yep. power, an offshore wind turbine now comes in at under £40 a megawatt hour. Now, now, into a market, bids in at auction at under £40 a megawatt hour. The reason we, one of the reasons we don't have more of it is because the government limits how much of it it's prepared to let into auctions. We should let the market work. OK, listen, Tom, Burke, thank you for joining us. You've made the argument for wind energy, and I thank you for doing so. Well, audience, you've heard both sides of that debate, and I hope fairly and reasonably. I do feel we're way too reliant on wind power. I regret... And, yes, I agree with Tom Burke about Hinkley Point, but that was not, that's not the purpose of this debate. You know, uh, there's very little that George Osborne and David Cameron did that I would ever agree with. I don't think they were terribly good for the country. But on this question of wind energy, I regret the fact that ordinary folk have been taxed tens of billions and it's been given to rich landowners and foreign wind power companies. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, Darren McCaffrey, our man, our political editor, is, of course, out there in America, and today he did an interview with the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and I'm very, very pleased uh, that he did that. It's the first interview uh, that GB News, as a station, has done with the Prime Minister, so let's have a look at Darren's interview from slightly earlier on today. Prime Minister, you say this is not a crisis, this gas crisis, but the industry bosses say it is. They say it's the worst thing for 40 years. It's a crisis, isn't it? Uh, there's a big problem, and it's caused by the spike in, in hydrocarbons that uh, the whole world is, is suffering, particularly, uh, I mean, gets gas, and that's a function of a colossal demand. And so it's, you know, this is, uh, some, this is a, a symptom of the world waking up from, from COVID. And it's been in a state of uh, cryogenic paralysis, much of the world economy, for a very long time. Uh, ships haven't been moving. Uh, ports have been, uh, have been inactive. Workers have been laid off or on, or on furlough. Things are now coming together again. Demand is surging. And you're seeing these, these blockages. And uh, as, I, as I said over the last, you know, pick your metaphor. It's like, it's like a, you're putting, a, putting everybody to, to collectively putting the kettle on after the cup final or, 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 or the unfreezing of your, uh, of your pipes uh, uh, in a thaw. Uh, but we're talking things, about food things shortages here, potentially. I, I, this I, is going to be a difficult winter for people. Uh, that's, uh, let's see. Uh, we're working very hard to make sure that isn't the case. I have every confidence uh, in our supply chains. Uh, I think that we can, we can manage the situation very, very well. This is a very resilient economy. It's the fastest-growing economy in the, in the G7. It's bouncing back very strongly. Wages are rising. Uh, unemployment is falling. Uh, jobs are rising. And that's the crucial thing. Well, we've also got inflation rising. We've got taxes going up. We've got the universal credit. 
it uh, going. We've got increasing in food prices. People are going to have a lot less money in the months to come. That's the frank thing. Yeah. People are going to have less money. Wages are, are rising, and, I'm, and I'd much rather see people in high-wage, high-skilled jobs uh, than uh, unemployed or on furlough. Uh, and uh, I'd much rather see a, a country that relied on investing in skills and investing in people and controlled immigration than the, try to fix the problem uh, with low skills and low wages and uncontrolled immigration, which I'm afraid, frankly, has been the approach uh, that we've had over the last 20 years or so. And it's, it's one of the reasons why the UK has been comparatively so unproductive. Uh, some of so many of our of our companies and so many of us so much of our economy has not been as productive as it could be. Invest in people, invest in skills, uh, support people's, make sure that people's wages go up. That's what we want to see. We look at what you're doing on climate change. Lots of people will be supportive of that. What they're not supportive of is people running onto the M25 motorway. It's happened for the fifth time in eight days. The police need to step up and stop this from happening. It's ruining people's livelihoods. It's, uh, look, it's it's crazy, and uh, they should they should get up. They, uh, I the, want the police to have not only the powers to uh, to take people off the motorways, the ungluers, and get, get rid of them as fast as possible, but I also want them to have the, uh, the sense that that's the, the right thing to do. The police should be doing more, though. Well, uh, I mean, there this are, keeps happening day after day. The police have to up, uphold the law, but these people are breaking the law, and they should pay the, they should pay the price. Uh, just on, uh, you're in New York, you're talking to lots of people. Do you think the whole Prince Andrew legal wrangling is doing Britain's international reputation damage? I have a, I have a, a, a blissful freedom, which is that I'd never comment on uh, no, I, I never have. I never uh, comment on matters affecting the royal family. It's one of the. It's one of the, uh, the get out of jail free cards that every prime minister has. Well, can I ask you? I know you're not a fan, and I know you don't watch it. Strictly come dancing, but some of the stars are not taking their jabs. They're refusing it. What's everybody your, should. Everybody, everybody should take their jabs. Everybody should take their jabs. And, and I say that not in a sort of hectoring or bullying way, uh, but just because I think it's the, it's a great thing to do. So there we are. There was Darren McCaffrey with Boris Johnson in New York earlier on today, and they're heading down by train uh, as we speak to Washington, D.C., where Boris Johnson will meet uh, Joe Biden in the Oval Office. Just one thought about what Boris Johnson said there. Wow, how times have changed. There's a Conservative Prime Minister talking about controlled immigration and upskilling the British workforce so that they can earn more money. And I have to tell you, that is music to my ears. I just now, Mr Johnson, would like you to show me how you can actually control immigration, because thus far you've not been too good at it, but please do, and the mood music was right. On climate change, it would appear that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden have an enormous amount in common. They're going to give vast amounts of money to poorer third-world countries for them to go a little bit greener. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that China is going to get, get themselves involved in this initiative, but when it comes to the crucial meeting in the Oval Office this evening, on the Northern Ireland Protocol and on a trade deal, I suspect the Prime Minister is going to get nowhere. Indeed, when he was asked about the trade deal, he said that Joe Biden had other fish to fry, which is pretty much the same as Barack Obama saying we were at the back of the queue. And I don't think we're going to get a trade deal with the USA under this administration until one is done with the EU as well. And that could take a very, very long time. Now, in a moment... Uh, we will talk about a report suggesting that as part of the health crisis, up to 10,000 more people could die of cancer than previously thought because they did not get diagnoses during the COVID-19 lockdown.
have we become too reliant on wind energy? Well, your reactions, Tony says, it makes me laugh when energy companies advertise green energy at no extra cost. Right enough, we, the public, have already paid through the nose for it, sadly. You are right, that is true. Bernard on email says, wind is variable over a very short timescale. Electricity cannot be stored sensibly. A supply that does not vary over a short timescale is the only solution. And that's where you get to gas, uh, but the price of gas is going through the roof. And I do really wonder, and we will debate these new small nuclear reactors and see where we are with them. Tracy says to me, I don't agree with you on everything, but on this you are 100% right. We need more nuclear power plants like other countries who are carbon neutral or very near carbon neutral. This programme should be watched by the entire country, bless you. And David on email says, we have as a country thrown away a golden opportunity by not embracing franking, or fracking I think he means. In 50 years' time, they'll be wondering how we could have been so stupid. Well, it is incredible isn't it, that we have really huge gas reserves up in Lancashire and across into Yorkshire and we're not doing anything about it. Now, the looming health crisis. I know I've been talking about it week after week and I'm going to go on doing it because it does really matter. A report out overnight by University College London suggesting that up to 10,000 people will die prematurely of cancer as part of an estimated 40,000 late diagnoses because of what's been going on with COVID-19. Um, and who's to say the number isn't even worse than that, uh, given the very low number of direct GP consultations and the emphasis the NHS put onto us dealing with COVID-19. Uh, did we get our priorities wrong? Did we perhaps have no option? Well, joining me to talk about this is Mark Lawler, a board member of the European Cancer Organisation and co-chair of the Special Network on the Impact of COVID-19 on Cancer. Mark, good evening. Welcome uh, to the programme. Uh, these numbers are somewhat alarming, aren't they? Absolutely, Nigel. Um, for me, COVID-19 is actually personal. I lost my uncle uh, from COVID-related illness oh. on the 29th of March. Uh, 2020 and one of my European colleagues uh, while reaching out to me to sympathize with me with my loss uh, said this very worrying thing to me um, and what he said was that people are fearing a COVID-19 diagnosis worse than a cancer diagnosis and that really got us thinking and so one of the pieces of work we did was exactly the type of work that you just talked about um, and we looked to see well what was the impact you know, at that yeah. time, this was back last March, April, there was no date out there. And what we found was that, you know, seven out of 10 individuals with suspicion of cancer uh, were not being seen by the specialist service. Four out of 10 of uh, cancer patients were not getting chemotherapy at the right time. So it's a very much a live issue. It's not just a live issue in the UK. It's a live issue in Europe. We've just completed a study where we've shown that one million, yeah, that's right, one million people may be walking around with a diagnosis of cancer that they don't know about because of the pandemic. Mm. And so that's a really frightening statistic. And as well as that, every one of those individuals is a person. And so we have to remember that. So we really do need to act um, in relation to the impact that COVID has had on cancer diagnosis and also on cancer treatment. Uh, Mark, I you know, understand for some people, sadly, it's going to be too late. But is there anything we can do to play catch up with this situation. Is it possible within the NHS, as it's structured in the UK today, that we can actually get back to where we need to be? 
Um, we can get back to, to where we need to be, but we need to invest. We need to invest in cancer diagnostic centers, for example. The other thing is getting back to 100% is not enough. We probably need to get back to 130% of normal based on work that we've done, uh, that we published recently to catch up. So it's not simply a sense of getting back to where we were. And also we have an opportunity here to actually reimagine cancer services and make them better than they were before. And I think that's what we should be doing, not just can we get back to where we were, let's get back to being better to where we were so we can diagnose more people earlier. And when we diagnose them earlier, then we can treat them much more effectively and cure them. Well, I, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that analysis. Mark Lawler, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. And we will keep talking about this looming health crisis over the weeks and months to come. Now, joining me now is GB News Home and Security Editor Mark White and the Salisbury poisonings, the Litvinenko poisoning. They're back in the news today, aren't they, Mark? Yes, indeed. Uh, Scotland Yard at pains to point out that as far as the Sol Salisbury investigation is concerned, although it's now more than three years since that poisoning with the nerve agent Novichok, and we've got a slight microphone problem here with Mark at the moment, which we need to sort out, and we're going to sort it out right now. Um, but, yeah, it's been three, it's been three. I'll tell you what, we'll do something else and we'll come back to Mark. Now, my What the Farage story today. Um, come in number 631. What on earth am I talking about? Well, uh, let's show you this picture. Yep, there it is, number 631. And it doesn't take a genius to guess, does it, that that picture was taken in Dover docks this morning. I haven't seen um, Border Force before putting numbers on the boats, but that is the 631st vessel that has come in across, illegally across the channel this year uh, and into Dover. And the number of people that has come so far this year is comfortably in excess of 16 and that's a number we're going to keep a very close eye on. We're going to go back to our home and security head of Mark White. Mark, Salisbury poisonings three years on. You'd think after 30 years in broadcasting, I'd know how to switch the mic on. We all make mistakes. <laughs> Many times <laughs> for me. Um, yes, so Scotland Yard uh, at pains to point out that they have been continuing with this investigation into the Novichok nerve agent poisoning. Uh, and that has led them, after uh, a lot of painstaking investigations, to name a third suspect. This man, Dennis Sergeev, uh, who travelled into the UK on the 2nd of March 2018, two days before the poisoning in Salisbury, under the alias of Sergei Fedotov, uh, one of a number of aliases he used. He was a senior member of Russian military intelligence, the GRU. The Metropolitan Police can now say that he was in meetings around central London and public locations with the two GRU agents who have previously been named, identified and charged. You can see pictures of them on the screen as they get a train down to Salisbury. Yeah, sightseeing. Maybe. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, they yeah. enjoyed the... Not very credible. They enjoyed the cathedral and yeah. uh, other lovely sights in Salisbury, they said. Um, they were dispatched off to Salisbury with that nerve agent... Uh, and according to authorities, sprayed it on the door of Sergei Skripal, this double agent, as was, uh, taken in by the British, but, according to authorities, was still a target of the Russian state. Uh, he fell ill, so did his daughter, Yulia, 
uh, and of course other innocent people, a detective sergeant, Nick Bailey, mm. uh, Don Sturgis, a member of the public who died, and her friend Charlie Rowley, who was critically injured in this as well. Um, the Home Secretary has been speaking in the comments about this and the determination, despite the lack of cooperation from the Russians, to try to bring these three men to justice. This is what she said. All three men are now wanted by UK police. Arrest warrants are in place for all three. The police have applied for an Interpol notice against Fedotov, mirroring those already in place against the other two suspects. Russia has repeatedly refused to allow its nationals to stand trial overseas. This was also the case following the murder of Alexander Litvinenkov, when a UK extradition request was refused. This has only added to the heartache of those hurt by these attacks, and Mr Speaker inevitably further damaged our relations with Russia. As was made clear in 2018, should any of these individuals ever travel outside Russia, we will work with our international partners and take every possible step to detain them and extradite them to face justice. Nigel, the finger was pointed firmly at the Russian state today because not just the Salisbury poisoning, but mm. the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko mm. now 15 years ago wow. with that polonium-210, that radioactive isotope. The European Court of Human Rights has backed up what the British have been saying all along, that this was... A, a hit that was orchestrated by the Russian state. But I think the Litvinenko case is the perfect example of how difficult it's going to be to bring anyone to justice for the Salisbury poisoning. Fifteen years on from Mr Litvinenko's death, yeah. no-one has been brought to justice. Yeah, no surprise there. Mark White, thank you very much indeed. In a moment, we'll look at policing on the M25 and then be joined by a former policeman and indeed the chief from Channel 4, Celebrity Hunted, yep... Peter Blexley is here on Talking Pints. So the M25 protests have been happening again today uh, at massive inconvenience to people's businesses, to those wanting to attend weddings, funerals, uh, those who want to catch flights. Um, and, of course, we've had one woman very badly injured by a car pile-up that happened behind... One of these protests, uh, another terrible case of a woman having a stroke and not getting to hospital in time. Uh, but let's just think about how these things have been pleased. Let's look at what happened on the M25 last week. Yeah, any assistance at all, you know, if you want a packet of fags or something, I mean, we'll obviously help you. It's, it's completely marvellous what you're doing, and we really support you. I'm amazed you didn't take the knee at the same time. Um, but today, a slightly different approach to policing on the M25. Well, that's more like it. I mean, that's more like it. That's what we want to see from our police. That's what I want to see from our police. Well, let's see what former policeman and founding member of Scotland Yard's undercover unit and author and star in the past of Channel 4, Peter Blexley, makes of it all. Welcome to Talking Pints, Peter. Good evening. Thank you very much for being on the show. Cheers. I am... Um, I've been somewhat mystified by people working in the old job you were in. Uh, they take the knee 
to protesters that want the police to be defunded. Um, they want to sort out people sitting on the M25 causing chaos in a nice way. Uh, today we did see a more robust approach. What's going on within the police force? Have they lost their way? Well, modern policing today is a long way removed from the policing that I got introduced to when I joined in the late 70s and the 80s. And in, in many regards, that's a good thing, yeah. because there were some pretty abhorrent practices that went on back in the day. And, and you saw that in Brixton and elsewhere, didn't you? Oh, and I'm glad that so much of that has been consigned to the dustbin history. It yeah. had no place in policing then, and certainly not now. Unfortunately, it's gone. The police have to be on red alert, of course, to racism and wrongdoing and the like, yeah. and fair play to them. Many people deserve an enormous amount of credit for modernising the police service. But modernising, I think, has meant that the pendulum has swung a bit too far, uh, for my liking. Because I firmly believe that the police should, in fact they are, should be there for everyone. Everybody. That should be the default position of the police, yeah. as understood by the public. And I think because of the steps the police have made now, they can make that case and say, we are here for everyone. OK. Apart from, of course, those who choose to break the law. Mm. And then we're there for them, but to scoop them up and put them in front of well, a court. Obstructing the Queen's Highway is breaking the law, isn't it? It most certainly is, and it's a very easy piece of legislation to enforce. <coughs> yeah. It's very clear and very easy. And myself, like many other people, my heart sank when I saw that nonsense going on last week. Um, the Met, fortunately, adopted a far more appropriate uh, kind of firmer line with the protesters yeah. and other forces around the M25, because it's policed by a number of yeah. different police yeah. forces, yeah. appear to be grasping the nettle and dealing with it certainly more firmly. And so they should. Whilst there is a message about the environment, of course, and I get that and understand it, mm -hmm. and I'm aware of it, and I recycle, and I persuade all my friends to do the like and more, and my house is very well insulated. If you could persuade China to do the same thing, that would be marvellous. But I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll check the diary for next week. Um, but, no. but, but, yeah, so yeah. back to my point about policing. Yeah, yeah. So police to be there for everyone. But what has happened, there's been a mission creep in recent years that the police have decided that by wearing a particular badge or a symbol or displaying a particular flag of some kind of allegiance, they are showing that they are there for a minority group. Mm-hmm. The default position, and I make no apology for repeating it, is that the police should be saying we are there for everyone except wrongdoers. And the only way to show that is by showing no particular over-allegiance to any like group, that. minority, whatever. Like so that. we don't paint police cars yeah. in LGBTQ colours, right? Yeah. That's, you know, I get it. You do not... And this, this would cause some controversy. I would not even allow police officers to wear a poppy on their uniform because it's a symbol of allegiance. Yes, remembrance, I know, but the police I uniform... I don't think the poppy is political, but... but... Well, then you, you can go into the white poppy debate and whether you wear a poppy or not, and if yeah. you're not wearing a poppy. So I would say no. The uniform that you are issued with okay. is the only uniform that you wear and there is to be no over-displaying of any symbol perceiving any allegiance to anybody because we're here for everyone and the only, one that the, police, the only way the police can prove and show that is by kind of being there for no-one, if you get what I mean. Yeah, interesting. No, everyone. interesting, and said with great passion. Now, your policing career led you 
into a very modern kind of policing, an undercover kind of policing, and I, I guess a pretty dangerous kind of policing. Just, just sort of share a bit with the audience some of the things you got up to. Well, yes, I spent over a decade pretending to be a gangster. Yeah. Um, so ditching my warrant card and going out there and spending sometimes days, weeks, months and longer with some very serious criminals who believed, fortunately, that I was one of them. I was a professional liar, I was a convincing gangster, and as a consequence I bought tens upon tens of millions of pounds worth of drugs, mm. bought many guns, counterfeit currency, entered conspiracies to murder people, and bought lorry loads of stolen whiskey and trainers and, and, and the such like. Um, sadly, I ended up paying a very heavy price for that because for one particular operation that I was involved in, the bad guys decided to take out a contract on my life, which was discovered by an FBI phone tap in a bar in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I was hurriedly parachuted into the Witness Protection Programme yeah. with no great forethought about it all. And not surprisingly, perhaps, continually conspiracy theorising as to how I'd got there, having the continual threat of the assassin's bullet in the back of my head, mm. drinking and smoking too much, I had a catastrophic mental health breakdown. Yeah, that's a heavy price. Yeah, and it kind of it, it signified pay. the end of my policing career, really. I, I, I got better, clung on for a couple of years, but essentially I was never going to work undercover again, uh, which was my main sort of skill base and had been for over... When you worked with these gangsters, when you were with these people, did you despite what they were doing wrong, did you actually in some ways begin to form friendships with them? Yeah, uh, because I'm a firm believer that there's more about humanity that yeah. unites us and divides us. Yeah. And that was actually often borne out by the fact that I would sometimes be in a bar or a hotel or a restaurant with these criminals yeah. who were great fun. I bet. They had a sense of humour. <laughs> they weren't constrained by the laws of the <laughs> land because they trampled all over them. Yeah. And they certainly weren't constrained by the police discipline procedure. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. My, my maternal grandfather was a senior Scotland Yard uh, policeman and was chief super of the fraud squad for many, many years. And I remember him telling me in late age that very often the people he was nicking and putting in prison... Actually, in many ways, he quite liked them as people, but it's just that they were breaking the law. It's a strange one, isn't it? But, but you kind of... It was a terrible end to your policing career, a terrible end for you uh, in that sense, but you recovered from it, and you've gone on to find quite interesting fame, really. I mean, the Channel 4 series, Hunted, uh, and then it morphed into Celebrity Hunted, and big numbers of people watched that... I mean, huge numbers of people watched that programme, and... There you were as the chief, and it was your job to hunt people down. I mean, how much fun was it doing that? It was a lot of fun. I mean, I went from this very secretive undercover life in the, in the police <laughs> yeah. into a totally new land where I'm on the TV. Um, and Hunted and Celebrity Hunted was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, and we, of course, as law enforcement or military professionals or yeah. whatever background my team came from had a lot of professional pride at hand, and we wanted to capture those pesky fugitives. So we took it enormously seriously. We were very determined. We worked tirelessly. Uh, but we had a bit of fun along the way, because there always has to be moments of levity. And as the chief, I felt it was part of my job to make sure those happened. Well, they did. So I was invited to go on Celebrity Hunted, and it was in 2019... And, of course, you know, the money was to go to cancer causes, and I've had cancer myself as a young man, so, you know, there was a lot of me wanted to do it. 
and the proposal was to team me up with Simon Weston. Um, and Simon rang me, an amazing sense of humour that Simon has, despite all the terrible disfigurement operations. He said, well, the trouble is, Nigel, I don't think we get far. We've got the two most famous faces in the country, but for different reasons, which was an amazing sense of humour for Simon. But I wanted to do it, but it was the wrong year. But I'd sussed it all out. You wouldn't have got me. I was going <laughs> to... No, no, you wouldn't have got me. No, no, no way. There's no way. I, no, I, no, I'd sussed yeah. it out. I'd sussed it out. I was going to hitchhike, right? Yeah. I was going to hitchhike with Simon. Right. And we get a car, pick us up. And no problem. And we do it during the night, you know, so there weren't too many cars that would see who we were. We'd hitchhike down to the coast. We'd give the driver a couple hundred quid to say, look, thank you, don't tell anybody you've seen us. Um, I was then going to organise with a friend a boat. And overnight, we'd have gone across to one of the very small... French ports, you know, moored up there. Uh, and 8 o'clock the next morning, gone and seen my local customs, said, look, we're here on holiday for a couple of weeks, and filled in the paperwork, and you'd never have found us, would you? There's a few fundamental flaws with you. <laughs> let me tell you. But most notably, that when I was chief, the rules of the competition were that you could not leave the mainland UK. Yeah, but I was going to cheat. And secondly, <laughs> and secondly, OK, yeah, well... Cheating, don't get me started on cheating. <laughs> but we, we find out when people cheated, or we certainly did when I was in charge. Because, you know, I didn't float up the Thames on a water biscuit, you know what I mean? I've been around the block a few times and I could rumble a cheat fairly easily. Um, your, your profile, your persona, of course, yeah. often polarises debate. So as much as you'd bung someone 200 quid yeah. to not say anything, when I go online, as, as I used to, making... Mm rather humorous videos for, uh, for, for either the main show or the celebrity version yep. and dangle the carrot of a rather large reward for somebody, mm. I'm sure there would be somebody who would have picked up the phone and said, Chief, I know exactly where Mr Farage is but right I'd have had now. a 50-50 chance, wouldn't I? I mean, if I stopped a car, you know, I'd have had a 50% chance of them liking me or not liking me. So I might you, might, got... you might have had a 42, 48%, 52% chance, <laughs> right, of somebody bubbling you up or not. But I reckon one of the 48 would have rang me, that's pretty sure. You must have had great fun doing it. It was a very successful programme. It raised a lot of money. It did. For very, very good causes. So what next, Peter? You've done some really exciting things in life. What's the next big thing you're going to do? Well, it's the current thing, thank you, yep. for asking. For the last two and a half years, I've been hunting a six-foot-six Liverpudlian by the name of Kevin Parle, yeah. who is wanted in connection with two separate murders. The first murder was the shooting dead of a 16-year-old boy called Liam Kelly in 2004, and the second murder was the shooting dead of a 22-year-old mother of three young children, Lucy Hargreaves, who has been described to me by everybody that I've met who knew her as being as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. Kevin Parle has not been convicted of either of these crimes, no. but he is very much wanted for them. He's on the National Crime Agency's most wanted list. I've dedicated the last two and a half years of my life to trying to find him. Yep. I simply will not rest. We have a BBC podcast about it called Manhunt, Finding Kevin Parle, and my latest book is called Manhunt, and this essentially is the longest wanted poster in the history of mankind. It's the story of my journey, what I've gone through, the mistakes I've made, what I'm doing, and I implore people, if they want to buy it, it can be purchased very cheaply online. Read it, I hope you enjoy it, and then leave it on the bus 
leave it on the tube, pass it on to someone, because this is not, not about profit, this mm. is about Powell, and finding Kevin Powell, because I firmly believe that a sense of justice is important to us all in our lives. When things are not just, then we feel hurt by it, and, and it leaves a, a bitter taste. For the I sakes felt... of Liam and Lucy, I want to see Kevin Powell in handcuffs. I felt with that story, I feel with that story, uh, that in your case, it's kind of once a cop, always a cop, really, isn't it? To a certain degree, yeah, it is. And I've been very fortunate to scratch a living for the last 20 years in the media. Part of my reason for hunting Kevin Powell was because my profile grew, courtesy of Hunted and Celebrity of course, Hunted, of course. when I decided to leave that show. What can I do for the greater good? Mm. And for Liam and Lucy, finding Kevin Powell is what I'm trying to do, for them and their loved ones as well, so that you can stand in a court and perhaps there can be some kind of closure. I've spent many a time with many people who have lost a loved one to murder or manslaughter. Mm. They've become friends of mine, and those people are the ones who serve a true life sentence, the people who are left behind. No, that's behind. true. No, that's absolutely true. Is he still alive? Yes, he is. There are some senior police officers, sadly, that want to believe the convenient rumour that he's dead. Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons, some of which I explain in the book, as to why they want to believe that. I have uh, a body of information which would utterly contradict that and would indicate that he's very much alive. And until there is irrefutable proof of his death, I will not stop hunting him. Peter Blexley, I wish you luck in hunting down Kevin Parle and bringing justice. And I thank you for coming on Talking Pints. Peter Blacksley. Cheers. Thank you. Well, we're nearly out of time, but we do come to that part of the programme where you send in your questions, the barrage, the farage questions, and I do my best to answer them, having not previously had a side of them. Travis on Twitter asks, how would you react to the legalisation of marijuana in the UK? I had a flaming row about that uh, when we had Peter Hitchens in not so long ago. I, I'm just at a point with this. I hate drugs. I think that uh, to call marijuana a soft drug actually underestimates the amount of psychological damage it does to many young minds. I don't like it at all. And yet, I feel our police services, our court services, and in some cases our prison services are in some ways fighting a battle with about as much chance of success as the Americans had with the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s and 1930s. More on that another time. Lisa asks, where is your favourite place in the UK? I do love much of Cornwall. I've always loved much of Cornwall. Parts of the Lake District are exquisite. But you know what? My home county of Kent, too, both the coast and the countryside, has got some great things to be said for it. Jonathan asks, what takeaway do you usually go for? I try not to go much for takeaway, Jonathan. I, um, I have been trying to lose weight you know, over the course of the last year or two, with some degree of success. But if I do get a takeaway, and it's difficult because living in a rural area, you know, you, you, you need to be sober enough to have drive to go and get it or they've got to find you. But it's normally going to be an Indian, I have to say. Now, thank you, everybody, for joining me this evening. I hope you enjoyed the show. We're going to keep these big debates going on about health, about energy.